Welcome to the one and only Circle City Setup with your host and the one and only Zach Griffin. Hello and welcome back to Circle City Cinema. I am your host, Zach Griffith. And tonight, another monologue for you guys. It's been a while uh, since I've done one of these, but I've seen some very good movies. Uh, Well, some very good, some okay, and a couple not great. But bottom line, I've seen movies in theaters, and I've been watching a lot of stuff, and I wanted to share on the air what I have seen. And tonight, talking about the Black Phone the big time horror movie out right now, directed by Scott Derrickson, as well as Thor Love and Thunder, the latest MCU entry, directed once again by Taika Waititi. Uh, but I have to lead off with a very passionate subject of mine. It has nothing to do with what this show is about. It actually has something to do with another favorite thing of mine, the Indiana Pacers. It's happened today. I'm recording this the night of July 14th. It is 6.59 p.m. And a couple hours ago, the Pacers signed one of my favorite players, a guy who I've been, if you've listened to Linsanity, if, you listen, if, you, if you're an active listener of the network, you know how I feel about this guy, DeAndre Ayton. The Pacers actually took a swing at a big-name player, signed him, to a $133 million offer sheet. And it seemed like the Suns, because the way it works, restricted free agency is dumb as fuck. Teams are allowed, if they're losing the guy, they're allowed to match the offer the other team put forward and basically keep the guy. And the guy doesn't have a say, which is that that's the dumb part to me. So the Pacers, who are virtually the only team in the market for DeAndre Ayton, Throughout this $133 million offer sheet. And the Suns, according to Woj, they're going to match it. And my bottom line here is, when am I going to get a fucking break? When are the Pacers going to get a break, dude? I mean, whether it's the draft. Like this year, Jay Nivey gets picked one pick ahead of us. I don't know if we were going to pick him, but... You know, the Detroit Pistons, who historically this past decade have been one of the most incompetent franchises... They finally decide to wise up one pick head of the Pacers. Today, Robert Sarver, historically one of the cheapest owners the league probably has ever seen, decides to shell out some cash because the Pacers want his guy. When all season, all the reports are saying the Suns don't want to pay him max money because they don't think he's worth it, even though, A, they got to the finals last year with him as arguably their second best player. And I was arguing the third best center in the league at the time. And then this year they win 64 games when he is a massive, massive part of it. They're not going to sign him to a max contract. They say it all season. And then today, one of the most hypocritical moves, the Pacers basically put their dick on the table and they're like 133 million. You can match it or not. And of course they fucking match it because now just like the Pistons decided to be smart, one pick ahead of the Pacers. Now the Suns are deciding not to be cheapskates when the Pacers' money is on the table. It just fucking pisses me off. I was so mad at work today because it was a wild roller coaster of emotions. Like I had elation when the Woj tweet came across that DeAndre Ayton possibly a Pacer. And then absolute anger and infuriation when it was reported the Suns are probably going to match the offer. It can still happen. I still have hope, but it's just the point stands that, you know, I just don't... <laughs> when are we going to catch a break, man? I mean, it's, uh, any uh, Herb Simon finally decides to shell out some cash that has to be one of the biggest contracts he's ever offered. It's probably the biggest. I mean, I, I don't know if Paul George got offered... A bigger deal than that, but it has to be one of the biggest deals that Herb Simon has ever thrown out there. And oh, fucking, oh my god, I'm so fucking mad, dude. I'm so mad because I wanted this guy so bad. This would have been, I don't, <laughs> I was so mad at work. I don't even have energy right now to 
to put forth into this microphone what I'm thinking. It's we would need more than the little E next to the episode name for explicit because I was uh Bryce Shaddy can tell you. Yeah, I was so mad at work today. I, I could have you know what? You can catch me on the railroad tracks. I'm gonna set up I'm gonna pitch a tent on the railroad tracks and just wait. Just wait because they just can't catch a break. Like I said, still a chance we can get him, but I've just whatever. I, this is an NBA pod, but I wanted to lead off with that because that was my Bryce Shaddy Memorial Please Miss Me Award. The Phoenix Suns matching our offer for DeAndre Ayton. It's a fucking joke. Now, folks, I'll get into things I've seen lately. First things first, the Stranger Things 4 finale. This was a great send-off to probably, in my opinion, the best season of the show so far. Uh, it took three years. Season 3 released in 2019. And of course, this season was released uh, almost two months ago now. It was released the same day as Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then the last two episodes of the season were released, I believe, two weeks ago, tomorrow. Uh, I watched them both. Both of the final two episodes when they came out. A little lengthy, of course, like the whole season. But with a show this quality and this hype level around it, I really didn't give a shit. It was an amazing send off to the best season so far. Like I said, and it took three years and for season five, it's being reported 2024. I say, take as long as you want Duffer brothers, because if you deliver a season in the same air of quality as this one, I really don't care how long it takes. I'll wait. <laughs> I'll wait however long you want. Is Netflix probably going to up their price during that time? Once again, probably, probably, but I don't care. And that's the other part of this Stranger Things 4. Netflix is very, very lucky that Stranger Things 4 was released this year because I don't have the stats in front of me. I don't know if this is true or not, but this had to be one of the worst years for Netflix in a very long time. Upping the price hurt them. Uh, They lost a lot of subscribers. HBO and Disney Plus are kicking their ass in satisfactory ratings. HBO Max, I saw a tweet a couple weeks ago. HBO Max had like a 92, 94% satisfaction rating among subscribers. Like that's insane. Disney Plus was second with like 87. And I think Netflix might have even been behind like Hulu. Like that is not good for Netflix, who was once dominating this realm of entertainment. So my point is they're very lucky Stranger Things 4 came out this year. They're lucky Hustle came out this year, which I discussed on this pod uh with Bryce a couple a couple weeks ago. Um so they're very lucky that came out. I'm here I'm seeing rumors that David Fincher is open to returning for a Mindhunter season three. That would be fantastic. Uh, obviously, that wouldn't be this year. That'd probably be in a couple years, if not three or four years. But that'd be a massive get for Netflix. Ozark finale, the final season of Ozark coming out this year. It's fantastic. And then honestly, people overlook this, I think just because it's been on Netflix for so long, but the Breaking Bad franchise, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, the El Camino movie, I mean, those are massive, massive properties for Netflix to have in their arsenal. I mean, people are always watching Breaking Bad. I mean, my my good friend Cooper Ogle watches Breaking Bad once a year. Me and the lovely Abigail are re-watching it right now. I'm re-watching it. She's watching some of it for the first time. And then Better Call Saul. I mean, as long as they have... And that's going to get massive ratings for them once the, the final season premieres on Netflix, so... Uh, they that's a massive asset for them, but my point is they're not where they used to be, and they're they're just very lucky. Stranger Things four came out. Stranger Things, just in general, one of the most original shows I can think of. Um, just a totally original concept. The the setting, the premise, the mix of sci fi and horror and coming of age and comedy at times, the dramatic elements especially in this season, which I thought did it the best out of any, any season before it. 
the dramatic elements are very tough to beat, especially for a streaming series. It's just one of the most original shows that I've ever seen. It's not based on any previous material. You know, uh, even shows like Breaking Bad, which I have talked very highly about on this pod, they take elements from, you know, whether it's they're taking elements from the characters or aspects of the show itself, they're inspired by shows that came before it. Breaking Bad, the premise, obviously original, but Walter White doesn't exist if Tony Soprano never existed. It's kind of the same thing with Mad Men. Don Draper probably doesn't exist if a villainous protagonist like Tony Soprano never came about. So with Stranger Things, you have an original concept that blends multiple different genres together quite flawlessly ever since the jump of this show in 2016. And it's really mind-boggling because you look at the runtime of some of these episodes and you're just like an hour and a half, you know, hour and 45 minutes. Like I'm not going to sit here and watch that, but with this show, at least for me and obviously millions of other people, they don't care. They don't care. I mean, I've always thought like, I don't care how long it is, whether it's a movie or a TV episode or, or what have you, or even a book. I don't care how long it is. If it's good, if it keeps me enthralled and entertained, the more the better because you don't want a good thing to end even if it's not entertainment you don't want a good thing to end just in life in general you don't want a good thing to end so stranger things 5 has been confirmed to be the last season speaking of not wanting a good thing to end and like i said it's worth the wait duffer brothers take your fucking time because vecna i want to get into vecna here Vecna, one of the most intimidating villains in any form of media that I have consumed that I've ever seen. One of the best villain backstories as well that I've ever seen. I did not spoilers ahead. Sorry, folks. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it, I don't know. Skip ahead a minute in the pod. Also get off your ass. Vecna, one of the most intimidating villains in any form of media that I've ever consumed. One of the best backstories that I've ever seen. I figured in the 11 flashbacks that the dude helping her was probably number one, but I don't, I did not see number one also being Vecna as well, that all of them being the same person had no clue. Great reveal of 11 opening the door, opening the gates to the upside down just that episode was, you know, speaking of Breaking Bad, very comparable to the mid season five finale of Breaking Bad where Hank's on the shitter and he sees the Walt Whitman book from Gale and realizes that Walter is Heisenberg. Very similar here where you're watching the flashback with 11, the quick cut to Vecna, the zoom in on his wrist, you see the 001 and you're like, oh fuck. Like this is, <laughs> what a reveal. What, one of the all time reveals in a, in, a, in a TV, in a TV show that I can think of. Game of Thrones had a couple, one in particular where you learn Jon Snow's actual background that he's a Targaryen and not, not a, uh, he's not actually a bastard. He's not actually Ned's son. So you learn that. Uh, but this, the Vecna reveal, I mean, one of the, I don't care if it's a movie, TV show, whatever the fuck. It, it's one of the best villain backstories. Definitely in the modern time of streaming. So I would say like the last five years, one of the best villain backstories, movie or TV. I don't care. I mean, just uh, a very intriguing villain and intimidating. And the fact that he, I mean, you saw what happened to Max at the end of the season, like breaking legs, uh, ripping out people's eyes, like, and he just looks fucking menacing. So he looks like if a, if a human was turned inside out, that's what he looks like. So Stranger Things 4, I don't throw this term around lightly, a masterpiece from, from top to bottom, a masterpiece. 
Next up on things I've seen lately, Succession. Now you might remember, didn't you watch Succession back in February? Well, yeah, I did. I did. And I never finished season one. So I figured, you know what? I just finished Stranger Things. I'm in the binging mood. I'm going to pick Succession back up. So I restarted it because it had been a few months and I wanted a clear memory. Currently on season two, uh, about a quarter of the way through season two, wild twists and turns that are very, very tough to predict. Uh, a prime example of this, Kendall drunk driving and killing a man in the season one finale. Kendall Roy, who already took a massive L in the beginning of the season when he tried to force out his dad and it didn't work. It backfired in his face. Then this time, and then he relapses on the drugs, and which is sad to watch. And it's still going on right now in season two. And I anticipate it's going to keep going on. And then killing the caterer and the drunk driving at Shiv's wedding. It's very like you don't expect something like that to happen in a show based on the business world and based in New York, at least in these tall buildings and big time executive. You don't, you don't expect something like that to happen. So my jaw dropped when the car drove into the, into the pond. Uh, really, I mean, how can you predict something like that if you're watching it? So one of the most shocking moments in any show I've seen. Um, and Brian Cox, the other thing I wanted to hit on the show, Brian Cox has actually been in a shitload of things I've watched lately. And I'll get into a couple of them later. But phenomenal performance is Logan Roy. I don't know if he's been nominated for any Emmys for the show. I gotta, I gotta imagine yes. But Brian Cox, one of the underrated actors in the modern era. So I would say probably from 1990 to the present. One of the most underrated actors that we've had. Uh, great performances, Logan Roy. Menacing, but also weirdly loving of his kids at times. And he's really hard to read. Like, you don't know if he's fake being a dad or if he actually cares or if he's just using his kids as leverage in the business world so he can stay on top of them. I don't know. I don't know. He's really, really manipulative character and really hard to read at times. Next up, I got the Planet of the Apes trilogy. I'm talking the new movies like Rise, Dawn, and War for the Planet of the Apes. Bought this trilogy on 4K at Best Buy. God, I mean, a couple months ago. For $25, I was very happy with the deal. And it was sitting on my desk in my room, still in the shrink wrap for all that time until this week. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Take a break from TV. Bust out some films. And I'm two-thirds of the way through the trilogy, and I'm very pleased. Caesar the Ape, one of the great film characters of the 21st century. I'm just going to say it. Since 2000, he is one of the great film characters of the 21st century, certainly in the science fiction genre. Um, And it's just cool to see the first franchise that Matt Reeves was involved in. Matt Reeves, who, of course, is running the Batman franchise now, running it very well. You don't need me to tell you that. Um, And just very well done movies in this trilogy. I mean, the production value... You just look at this movie, especially in 4K, and you're just kind of in awe at how they're able to look at these sets that they've built, like the the uh, fort that the apes live in in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is the second movie, where a virus... Basically, they're living in the mountains of San Francisco... A virus introduced in the first movie, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, has ravaged the human population to the point that any humans that are left in San Francisco are holed up in this federal building. And eventually, of course, as in any Planet of the Apes movie, the apes and the humans cross paths, conflict ensues. So the performances in this movie as well, I mean, what Andy Serkis was able to do with Caesar. Andy Serkis, which, again, don't need me to tell you this. One of the great CG performers. No, not, what am I saying? 
the best CG performer of all time. This guy played Gollum. This guy played Kong in the Peter Jackson King Kong movie. This guy is Caesar, who I just said is one of the great film characters of the century. Uh, redefined how to interpret CG characters. Caesar, you know, even 20 years ago, film critics or even average moviegoers wouldn't have considered a character like Caesar who was totally computer animated, not traditionally played by an actor in an orthodox way. They wouldn't have considered that, you know, an actual performance, just to put it bluntly. Like they wouldn't have considered it a real performance. And now we see that it very much is. And that was a dumb way of thinking 20 years ago. And it's still, it's even dumber to think that way now because there are definitely some critics. I read some reviews of these movies basically shitting on them because it has a CGI protagonist and that's, that's bullshit. What was, what was Thanos? You know, Thanos got universal praise from critics and he was a totally CGI character. So Caesar, I think is, he redefined how to interpret CGI characters and it's all due to Andy Serkis. Um, and the themes in these movies. I mean, the conflict between the apes and the humans. I mean, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, I thought Rise was good. And I thought Dawn was at least five times better. Uh, it has 7.6 on IMDb. I still need to see War for the Planet of the Apes, which is the conclusion. But, goddamn, these, so far, so good. Two, two for two so far. I can't wait to see how. It concludes, from what I can tell, it's just an all-out war in the third one. So, And Woody Harrelson, who who makes everything better. Another thing about this trilogy, it makes me miss the old 20th Century Fox. makes me kind of sad that Disney bought 21st Century Fox. You know, you just see the, the Fox, the 20th Century Fox logo and the music come up. And you just get chills. It's It's one of the great studios that we've ever had one of the iconic logos i don't know just it just makes me miss it and then i have the spectacular spider-man which had to do it (laughs) i had to do it recently put on netflix my second favorite spider-man show ever some consider it the best i still have the 90s cartoon ahead of it um obviously the animation this one is better probably a better interpretation of some of the villains. I would say Electro is probably the biggest beneficiary of the modernization of the series. Uh, but some consider it the best, which honestly I'm not going to argue with them because in the 26 episodes, this was only able to air. I thought it was phenomenal. I remember when this was on Disney XD when I was a kid, um, really, really great series back then. It's it holds up now. I was kind of wondering where it was because every other Spider-Man series was on Disney Plus and I was kind of confused as to where Spectacular Spider-Man was. Now here it is on Netflix. I hope it stays. I hope even more that they pick it up and bring back the cast. Josh Keaton, who voiced Peter Parker in this series, has always been a big advocate of bringing it back. And... I'm happy. I'm happy it's back. Um, I hope Netflix picks it up if that's an option. I seriously doubt it because Disney's involved in this. But it's great to have it back. A near-perfect adaptation of the character. It adapts certain aspects of the source materials a little differently. For instance, Eddie Brock, instead of working for the Bugle, he works in a lab with Kirk Connors. Um, Stuff like that. But nothing that takes away from the story. It was canceled due to a legal dispute between Disney and Sony. So the moral of the story, Disney sucks. Um, They're a monopoly that needs to be stopped. (laughs) Um, But uh, that's why it was canceled. So if you were a little bit older in 08, 09 and were upset that this was canceled, blame the mouse. In the news section, I only have a couple things here. James Kahn dies at age 82. Really tough celebrity death to take. 
Uh, obviously most known for Sonny Corleone and the Godfather had a little small appearance in the Godfather part two in a dinner flashback. Uh, he was also in Brian's song, the biopic about Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers and Elf, of course, as Walter Hobbs, Buddy the Elf's father. Thief, which is one of Michael Mann's finest films. And then Misery, one of the better Stephen King adaptations that we've gotten. Um, kind of outshined by Kathy Bates, but it's also one of the all-time performances by an actress, so no shame in that. He held his own. So James Caan, rest in peace. You will be missed. And then Tony Sirico, who... Most famous, of course, for playing Polly Walnuts on Sopranos. Inarguably the funniest character on the show. Um, dies at age 79. So that was a tough one to take. Uh, but in trailer news, the first trailer for Amsterdam is released. This is the latest film by David O. Russell, who is most known for movies like The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, Three Kings, which was a little bit of an older movie from the 90s. Uh, great movie, though. Historically hard to work with. George Clooney hates him. Um, American Hustle, honestly, not great. It's not a great movie. Um, but it had a big cast and was nominated for a lot of Oscars. So there's that. In theaters, November 4th. Um, and an all-star cast. Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington... Those are the three main actors featured in the trailer. Then you have Anya Taylor-Joy, who is just on a fucking run right now. Zoe Saldana, Robert De Niro, Rami Malek, Chris Rock, Timothy Oliphant, one of my favorites, Michael Shannon, and Taylor Swift, which is interesting. Um, I would just say this trailer looks great, but I would just be wary of stat casts. Like I said with American Hustle, they've been mishandled by David O. Russell before. So don't be surprised if it's bungled. I hope not. I hope not. But don't be surprised. And then a little bit of news here. News, you can call it that. The city of Albuquerque, New Mexico is erecting statues of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. I thought that was very cool. <laughs> I mean, I mean, why, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I, 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 I just, why not? I would do it if I was the mayor of Albuquerque and had that kind of power. I, I would do it. So, I, I'm a fan of it. That statue, I would go. That's a, that's a, good, it's a great tourist attraction. I mean, I would say the majority of people in my age group and maybe a little bit older, and of course younger, would associate Albuquerque most with Breaking Bad. So it makes total sense to me. I don't have a problem with it. So no problem with that. Really, honestly, great news. Now we get into the movies tonight. The Black Phone and Thor Love and Thunder. I was on the fence before I started this, what I wanted to lead off with. I'm going to lead off with Thor. Um, this is the biggest movie out right now. So, And I've gotten requests... <laughs> in particular from Caleb Lynn about what I think of this movie. And I think it's just a good one to lead off with. So Thor love and thunder, the plot synopsis, according to IMDb, Thor enlists the help of Valkyrie Korg and ex-girlfriend Jane Foster to fight Gore, the God butcher who intends to make the gods extinct directed by Taika Waititi produced by Kevin Feige and Brad Winderbaum. Written by Taika Waititi and Jennifer Caton Robinson. Music by Michael Giacchino, who is on a fucking roll right now. And Nami Melumad. Cinematography by Barry Idiyan. Edited by four different editors. I didn't list them all. Starring Chris Hemsworth, Christian Bale, Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, Taika Waititi, and Russell Crowe. I'll get to him later. Russell Crowe. Currently a 7 out of 10 on IMDb based on 75,000 votes. 3 out of 4 stars. RogerEbert.com had a $250 million budget. 
Uh, last time I checked, $313.5 million at the box office. Uh, I have one word to describe this movie. First off, let me just say, let me, I'm going to, I don't want to get anything misinterpreted. Uh, uh, let me say this. I did not hate this movie. Okay. I did not hate this movie at all. It is just based on the standards set by Ragnarok and Taika Waititi in that movie. This movie should have been a thousand percent better than it was. It pales in comparison to Ragnarok, which depending on who you ask, and I might be one of them, I still don't have my rankings set in stone yet. Ragnarok, a top five MCU movie. So obviously a hard precedent to match, but you could have done a shitload better than this, man. This, this was, I give it a six out of 10. I give it a point lower than the IMDb rating. I give it a six out of 10. I thought it was fine. There was way, way, way too many jokes. I mean, almost to the point where it it took away from the movie. There were a couple people in my theater that walked out. I saw them walk out. Um, It was just too reliant on jokes. Now, let me just say, I never got to the point where I was like, fuck this, I'm out. I would never walk out of a Marvel movie. I don't care how bad it is. But I didn't think it was that bad where you could say, fuck this, I'm out. Like, I didn't think it was that bad. Six out of ten, like I said, just too reliant on jokes and comedy. And honestly, not good comedy. Not good comedy. I laughed twice out of like 2,000 jokes. It was not good. The goats, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. The goats were annoying as fuck. I hated the goats. Um... The jokes were to the point that it took away from the story at times. You know, Ragnarok had a nice, amazing blend of comedy. Probably the best example of any Marvel movie. Best blend of comedy and emotion. Genuine emotion of probably any MCU movie, which is saying something. And this one just didn't, it didn't have it. I mean, way too many jokes from the jump. Um, fantastic opening. However, the, the gore backstory. I mean, I I it was a hard opening. Like I really enjoyed that. I thought we were gonna get possibly one of the best villains in the MCU, and he ended up being pretty good, which is no surprise considering who the actor was. One of the better motivations for a villain in this later MCU era. I'm talking post Endgame. Um. Uh, I thought Christian Bale and Gore was the best part of the movie. I just wish he could would have survived. Uh, the MCU has always been that way, having good villains and then killing them off after one movie. Um, I just wish he would have survived and, and been utilized more. I didn't feel like he was on screen that much after the backstory was revealed before the opening crawl. So I just wish he could have been in the movie more. I've seen on Twitter a lot that it was a waste of Christian Bale. I have to agree. I have to agree because if you enlist an actor of that caliber, I mean, I would want him to stick around for at least two movies. Definitely wouldn't kill him off after one, but that's what they did. The MCU has a history. I don't have to go through the whole history. Everyone, if you follow the MCU pretty closely, you know, they don't keep their villains around very long. There's a couple exceptions, but it's been a problem for them. Same thing here. They didn't keep him long. They didn't. They didn't keep him alive very long. Gore was menacing throughout the movie. Um, there was a point he kidnaps a bunch of children, and he's teasing the children while they're in captivity. Um, all the black and white scenes on the planet where eternity is were pretty chilling at certain points. Um, in my opinion, that was the best part of the movie. Any scene with gore in it, I was I was all in and invested. Um, it's just the fucking jokes, man. They they didn't land. It felt rushed. The movie felt rushed. It was a two hour movie, and it felt like two and a half. I just don't. Like I said, I didn't hate the movie, but I'm probably not gonna see it anytime in the near future. 
it just didn't it didn't do it for me it didn't do it for me one of the lesser mcu works if you want me to be honest uh i just don't i i, I don't know i don't know I, I think it was just i don't know what happened and and you can miss me on after the fact claiming a bunch of scenes got cut you can miss me you can miss me on that because you should have enough power talking about Taika here you should have enough power based on how good Ragnarok was you should have enough power to tell the studio hey I want to keep this in I want to keep this in so if there was actually shit left on the cutting room floor it should have made it in there so and you can miss me this seems to be a trend with like directors whose movies come out and they're not very well received or they're mixed reception movies and then they claim, well, this isn't the version I wanted. This isn't what I this isn't what I had. Just because the Snyder Cut was a rousing success doesn't mean every director whose movies get one or two bad reviews doesn't mean that deserves a fucking director's cut re-release. Like the Snyder Cut was a whole different situation in its own. The backstory in that goes way, way beyond what this would have been. So, like I said, way, way too many jokes. Wildly inconsistent tone. I honestly felt like it took away from Jane Foster's death at the end. Jane Foster, who's suffering from cancer. Um, Mjolnir calls to her, actually keeps her alive, but also kills her at the same time, which wasn't really wasn't really explained well to be honest but a nice look at Heimdall at the very end of the post credit scenes nice to see him back haven't seen him since he was stabbed through the fucking ribs by Thanos and of course the Hercules cameo Hercules who shaping up to be I was wondering when he would show up he's shaping up to be the next adversary probably in Thor 5 or Maybe before that. So, like I said, 6 out of 10. Could have been better. I have it third among Thor movies. I have Ragnarok 1. I have Thor 1 number 2. I would have this 3, and I would have Dark World 4. So, um, I want to get into my Phase 4 rankings right now. These are only based on what I've seen. And this includes the films and the shows. Okay, so based on what I have seen, I have seen most of Phase 4. I have not seen The Eternals, and I have not seen Miss Marvel. So those are not included in my rankings here. So I'm going to start number one and go down. I usually go in reverse, but I'm going number one, and I'm going to start down just because I don't think number one will surprise anyone. Number one, of course, Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, I'm going to have a monologue on this movie coming soon. One of the great homages to a character in cinematic history. And I'm not just talking the Tom Holland version. I'm talking the versions that came before it. Uh, There were even subtle hints to the shows and the books, of course. Um, I'm going to save most of my thoughts on this movie for the monologue, obviously, but... It expands on the character's future in the MCU and outside of it exponentially. And uh, most of all, arguably, most of all, a great redemption for Andrew Garfield and Jamie Foxx. Probably the biggest losers in the entire Spider-Man mythos in film. Probably the biggest losers and got the best redemptions. In this movie. So Spider-Man No Way Home, I think far and away number one project in phase four so far. Number two, I have Loki. Loki opened the door to the multiverse. Uh, introduces to Kang, who's going to show up again in Ant-Man 3. And it brought Hiddleston back, which is always a plus. And it brought him back in a very creative way. Expanded the MCU into places that seemed unreachable even five years ago. I mean, if you think about the time period when Ant-Man and the Wasp came out, uh, even Infinity War, even Ragnarok, you weren't thinking about multiversal elements, you know, 
I mean, maybe people had floated the idea, but you were not expecting something like this to go down. And, you know, variant versions of a character, which we have seen in Multiverse of Madness, we've seen in What If, they were all, they, Loki came first. Loki came first. So, and easily, I think the best MCU produced, Marvel Studios produced show. Disney Plus original show that we have gotten. So, got Loki number two. Number three, I got another movie, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I loved this movie. This was the Wanda Maximoff that I had always wanted to see. Villainous, unchained, um, inconquerable. The best phase four villain thus far, without question. I mean, I don't think it's even close. Um, she was unstoppable. A phenomenal chapter in one of the finest character arcs in the MCU universe. Um, a phenomenal chapter. It's unclear which side of the fence she's on now, but this added to her mythos. It was basically confirmed in this movie that she's the most powerful Avenger, and I don't think it's close. Uh, Doctor Strange or Thor probably second but I don't it's not close um, Scarlet Witch is the most powerful Avenger that there currently is number four I have what if I put this off for a long time I didn't watch it in its entirety until the lead up to Multiverse of Madness and I'm very glad I did um, I'm very glad I watched it probably the most creative premise out of the phase four projects um Played off the multiversal elements that Loki set up very well. Um, and uh, on a somber note, a pretty good Chadwick Boseman send off. Um, he played an alternate version of Star Lord T'Challa in this in this uh series, and it was a nice little send off. I know they probably didn't plan it as a send off, how could you have planned it? But it was a nice final project for him. Then, of course, Captain Carter uh, crosses over into a movie into Multiverse Madness. So, this this series, I would, rec- I would highly recommend watching it because you just don't know what Marvel's going to use in movies. Number five, I have WandaVision. Um, the most important element of Wanda's arc, this show. It's... I don't think it's close either. The white vision remains to be seen. He's still alive. Um, Haven't seen a lot of theories about him, but he is alive. And I can't believe it, but it was a year and a half ago this movie came out, or this series came out. So let that sink in. Number six, I have Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, One of the most pleasant surprises in the entire MCU. Did not have high hopes for this movie. Uh, it was a lot like Guardians of the Galaxy in the fact that little you have little known characters and the movie is just a banger. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is better, but it's similar in the fact that the characters weren't very well known. You didn't have high hopes going in and it ended up being a banger. So I've been clamoring to watch this movie again. I've only seen it in the theaters the one time. I haven't seen it since. Um, but... I could do for a rewatch pretty soon. Shang-Chi, without a doubt, going to be one of the staple characters going forward. So glad to have him. Number seven, I have Moon Knight. This should have been a hell of a lot higher based on how good the pilot episode was. Um, This should have been dark as fuck, and it wasn't. I wasn't very satisfied with the finale just because of the tonal changes. And honestly, it's a cause for concern regarding the Blade project. Um, I swear to God, if they Disney Plus Blade, if they Mickey Mouse his ass, I'm going to be very upset because Blade is a fucking dark character with a tragic backstory. And they have enlisted one of the finest actors in Hollywood, Mahershala Ali, to play him. So... Don't fuck it up, please. That's all I ask because Blade is one of the most badass characters in the MCU, has the potential to be the most badass. He is half human, half vampire. He's known as the Daywalker because if you know anything about vampire mythos, 
They can't walk in the daytime. Blade can. And he fucks vampires up. I will be very upset if they PG his ass. I will be very upset. But it's cause for concern because they did it with Moon Knight. Moon Knight, who is supposed to be, you know, basically as close as you can get to the Batman of Marvel. Um, the split personalities. I know it's a pretty big part in the books, but it just got old at times in this series. Now, I give this series a 7 out of 10, which is still, if you're going on a grading scale, a C. But at this point, Marvel can be average. Like, a C is average. You can't be, you can't be average at this point. And I'm just wondering, where could this character cross over into the movies? You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where he fits. Um, possibly Blade if they nail it. Um, but I just, I don't know where he fits. My point should have been a whole lot better than it was. Number eight, I have Hawkeye. Um, if it ends up being this, it was a very nice Jeremy Renner send off. Introduced a staple character going forward in Kate Bishop. Um, very brilliantly played by Haley Steinfeld. Uh, but the takeaway made a mockery of Wilson Fisk that needs dramatically corrected. They Disneyed his ass. If you saw the Netflix Daredevil series, arguably the most menacing villain, definitely in the Marvel shows, arguably in the entire Marvel cinematic universe. This guy beheaded a man with a car door. This guy pushed an old man down an elevator shaft. This guy broke someone's spine on the corner of a wall. Like the way he was portrayed in Hawkeye just wasn't correct. It just wasn't, wasn't how we were used to. And, you know, you put the parental controls in place for a reason on Disney plus fucking use them fucking use them. Don't PG daredevil. Don't PG Kingpin. Just make it a banger. Bring back the entire original crew from the Daredevil Netflix series. It doesn't have to be hard. Like, you put the parental controls in place for a reason. Fucking use them. Fucking use them for Daredevil and for Blade. Please do that. Number nine, I have the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I love Sam taking up the mantle. Uh, Weak, weak, weak villain. And you can miss me so hard on the U.S. agent. What they did to Sharon Carter in this series, I thought was embarrassing. I'm not buying that she's a villain now. I'm just not buying it, especially considering the family she comes from. Not, not doing it. Not buying it. Zemo, best part of the best part of the show. Bucky's future unclear. Number ten, I have Black Widow, another weak villain. What they did with Taskmaster was pretty abysmal. But an intro to Yelena, who has the potential to be one of the most important characters going forward. Should have been way better. Should have been a much better send-off to Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff. But it was okay, all things considered. And number 11, I have Thor Love and Thunder in last. Um, I would rather watch all of the things I said before than Thor Love and Thunder. I just, I'm sorry, man. I wasn't, I wasn't high on it. I wasn't high on it. I didn't think it sucked by any means. There's definitely been a hell of a lot worse, even in the MCU. But I'm not clamoring to rewatch this movie. I'm just not. Uh, upcoming projects in phase four, we have Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which I think is the most daunting task the MCU has faced maybe ever. Um, you're replacing an iconic character. Well, you're not replacing him. You're, you're going on without him. And it's going to be very hard. You know, they've been very hush-hush on what the premise of this movie is. Uh, we've heard a little bit about the production with Letitia Wright and stuff like that, but no clue how they're going to handle the passing of Chadwick Boseman how they're going to explain a way to Chala. It's going to be very, very challenging. 
and very emotional. Um, I don't, I think it's going to be very, very good. Um, if it's not, obviously no one or no one should blame them if it doesn't live up to the Black Panther standards. But the possibility is there. I am of the belief it's going to be outstanding. I trust Ryan Coogler with basically any project. Um, I think it's going to be very, very good. And one thing's for sure, it's going to make a shitload of money. Um, it's going to make a massive, massive amount of money. Then we have Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania. Uh, coming out early next year, I believe. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it'll be nice to have Kang back. And the multiversal elements will be on display for sure. Then you have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, James Gunn. I think this will be a banger as well. And then Fantastic Four, which has been very hush-hush. Uh, John Watts, obviously, was tabbed to direct it. Now is not. They're looking for a replacement, but don't really know where production stands right now. Looking forward to it, however. The future of the Thor character. I want to talk about this. I thought he was going to die in this movie. Uh, my was my prediction going into this movie. I thought he was going to die simply because most of the OG Avengers had either A, died, or B, retired. And I just didn't know. Simply because, you know, Odin is dead. The OG version of Loki is dead. Heimdall is dead. His mother is dead. Like, I just thought, if you're going to send off... Thor, it's probably here. But then when the movie was over, I kind of felt dumb because I thought, well, if they were going to give Thor a send-off, wouldn't have been an endgame? Wouldn't it have been there? Because it would have fit the climax of the movie and there were already two very emotional... One was definitely a death. The other one was kind of a retirement. I'm talking about Cap. Uh, So... I kind of felt dumb when this movie ended. I, if they were going to retire the Thor character, it probably would have been there. Russell Crowe in this movie, a great metaphor for where his career is right now. Uh, a fucking abysmal performance as Zeus. One of the worst parts of the movie, in my opinion. Uh, I didn't like it. Russell Crowe, uh, God help you. You have fallen... Very, very far. Um, Thor, Love and Thunder, like I said, I give it a 6 out of 10. Um, Is it worth buying a ticket? I think every Marvel movie is worth worth the price of admission, no matter how good it is. Just because you have to see. You have to see them in theaters. You have to. The only MCU movie I've not seen in theaters is The Eternals. And for whatever reason, I I don't know what it is about that movie, but I'm not... I am just not motivated to watch it. And I luckily I'm house sitting in a couple weeks. Maybe I'll watch it then. Um, but the runtime is very daunting. It's like two and a half hours, a little bit longer. Maybe I'll watch it then. I don't know. I'm not in a hurry to watch it, but Thor 11 thunder, uh, bottom line didn't live up to what I thought it was going to be. Next up, we have the black phone, uh, the plot synopsis, After, from IMDb, after being abducted by a child killer and locked in a soundproof basement, a 13-year-old boy starts receiving calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victims. Intriguing premise. A black phone directed by Scott Derrickson, who is most famous for directing Doctor Strange, Sinister, and The Exorcism of Emily Rose, a movie you could not fucking pay me to watch. Produced by Jason Plum, Scott Derrickson, and C. Robert Cargill, who co-wrote Doctor Strange with Scott Derrickson. It's written by Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill. Music by Mark Corvin, who works with Robert Eggers a lot. He scored the movies The Witch and The Lighthouse, both of which are very, very good. Cinematography by Brett Juckowitz, edited by Frederick Thorval. Based on the 2004 short story by Joe Hill, 
don't let the name fool you. Joe Hill is the son of Stephen King. And he is a spitting image of his father. You just look up a picture of Joe Hill, who understandably goes by the pen name Joe Hill. A fucking spitting image of his dad. Quite staggering. And starring Mason Thames, Madeline McGraw, Jeremy Davies, James Ransone, and Ethan Hawke, the great Ethan Hawke. I'll get into him. 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb based on 25,000 votes. A perfect 4 out of 4 stars on RogerEbert.com. An $18 million budget just crossed the $100.4 million mark at the box office. Made a fucking killing, no pun intended, at the box office. I tend to love the early years slash summer horror movies. Think Get Out in 2017 that came out in February of that year. Scream came out in January of this year. And then we have this, which comes out in the summer. I love, I don't know, a horror movie, like, of course, the ideal time is to release them in the October, November range. But I fucking love horror movies that come out earlier in the year in the summer because it's one of my favorite genres because you don't have to read deep into it. You can just sit down and you can watch it and you can enjoy it, which is exactly what I did with the black farm. Me and the lovely Abigail went to see this as did we with Thor love and thunder. Both love this movie. This was right up both of our alleys. It's not, Overly scary per se, but it's quite creepy. Uh, this is probably the creepiest character Ethan Hawke has ever played. Um, if you enjoy serial killer stories, you know, if you enjoyed like, I'm trying to think here. There's a lot of Netflix material that hits on serial killers. If you enjoy any of that stuff, you would love this. Uh, it's still in theaters. It's making a bank it's making a boatload at the box office. So I don't see it leaving theaters for a little bit. It is going to be available on demand pretty soon. I forget the date exactly. You know what? Let me look. Let me look. It's supposed to be pretty soon. The black phone. Uh, let's see here. The black phone on demand. When the fuck is this coming out? Black phone on demand. God damn. I just saw this. This Friday, fuck, tomorrow, tomorrow. It'll be out on demand tomorrow. It'll still be in theaters. It was worth, I thought it was worth the price of admission. It was very good. There were some supernatural elements of this movie that I'm a sucker for these kinds of things. Uh, I love the supernatural. I actually took a class on it in college. It was very interesting. Very, one of my favorite, one of my favorite classes I ever took in college, the supernatural. And there's some elements of it in this movie that really made the movie at some points. Uh, the main character, Finney, is a is the latest kidnapping victim of Ethan Hawke's character, who's only known as the Grabber. And Finney's sister, Gwen, exhibits abilities to see visions of the future in her dreams. So, for example... She has a dream and envisions the house in the dream that Finney is being kept at. Um, she is riding her bike down the road, sees a flash vision of the grabber's past victims, stuff like that. It does it in a very low-key way. This isn't like an, a sixth sense type of vision over the top, like dominates the movie like it's a, it's a factor in the movie but whereas in the sixth sense you know cole the main kid in the movie that's the main point of the movie he can see dead people he can see ghosts and he sees them everywhere he goes whereas gwen here doesn't only sees them in dreams only sees them at certain points so uh nostalgic 1970s setting um i'm a sucker for 80s, 70s, even 90s settings. 
I love the period pieces. The dad of Finny and Gwen is a shitbag. He's a shitbag. There's a very tough, tough, tough scene of child abuse. Um, a belt is brought out against Gwen. Very tough to watch. Um, so, but I mean, you feel bad for the dad uh, when when the kid is kidnapped. Obviously, there's some emotional scenes with him and apologizing to the kids, but he's he's still a shitbag. Uh, the voices on the phone. So the way they do this, there's a phone on the wall in this soundproof place. Finney is being kept in and the grabber is basically ignoring the fact that it rings. He thinks that since it's disconnected from the phone lines, it couldn't be ringing. And then he's just hearing things. Well, Finney picks it up. The voices of the past victims, are talking to him over the phone and they're giving him tips um, how to escape things they tried uh, locations of resources he can use to escape the voices on the phone are chilling calls at times Uh, sometimes the victims are even visualized and it's weird like they can't remember their names like he'll be talking and of course, Finney knows all the kids that were taken. So he's like, oh, you're, you're the paper boy. You're, I forget the name, but he's like, you're the paper boy. And he's like, I don't know if that's my name. I don't remember. I don't recall. So Finney helps them remember, and then they help him devise ways to escape. It's, it's, very, it's a very cool premise. James Ransone, one of the stars of the show, I knew... I knew the name. I knew the name, but I could not. I was like, I need to see his face because I know that name. I just need to see his face. Ziggy from The Wire. It's Ziggy Sabaka from The Wire. As soon as he showed up on the screen, I was like, fucking Ziggy Sabaka. Fucking The Wire. Like, I knew I knew that name from somewhere. He plays the grabber's brother who is literally on cocaine the whole movie. It shows him snorting lines, hitting the slopes, literally on coke the whole movie. And he's one of these like obsessive case followers. Like he thinks he could solve it himself. And he's, he definitely provides the comedic relief in the show. Uh, He's unaware that his brother is the killer which is ironic because he fucking lives with him. Probably all the coke. Um, and suffers a brutal death. Took, takes an axe to the skull. Near the end of the film, he finds the soundproof uh, room where his brother is keeping these victims. And his brother is right behind him on the stairs. Puts an axe in his skull. So, spoiler alert, that's my who got it the worst for this. Uh, the grabber's brother, Max. Ethan Hawke in recent years, I want to cover this. I said it before that he, this was his creepiest character. I stand by it. Ethan Hawke, a little bit of a renaissance recently, <laughs> like in the past two years. He reunites with Scott Derrickson in this movie. They worked together on Sinister back in 2012. So 10 years ago. Uh, here's some notable roles for Ethan Hawke in the past couple of years. The Guilty, the Jake Gyllenhaal Netflix movie where Jake Gyllenhaal plays a 911 dispatcher. We only hear Ethan Hawke's voice in this movie, but it was still a good performance. The Northman, very brief from Ethan Hawke in this movie, but very good nonetheless. Moon Knight playing Arthur Harrow, also really creepy. Uh, one of the best parts of the show, in my opinion. And then in this September on Netflix, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. So basically Knives Out 2 is going to be released. He's going to be in that. Then he's going to be in a movie called Raymond and Ray, co-starring with Ewan McGregor. It features two half-brothers at their father's funeral. So I thought that was, you know, two of my favorite actors. So obviously I'm going to watch that. And then he's in an intriguing pandemic film based on the book of the same name, the title 
leave the world behind. And then he's also in a movie, unannounced uh, release date, called Revolver with his daughter, Maya Hawk. And it's about an obsessive Beatles fan who tries to break into their hotel. So an intriguing plot as well. This is shaping up to be a phenomenal horror year. Scream earlier in the year, as I said. The Black Phone now. Nope. Next week. And Halloween ends around October. So this is shaping up to be a phenomenal horror film. Like I said at the top, one of my favorite genres. Two of my favorite horror franchises in the same year. I don't know the last time that happened. So The Black Phone. See it. I give it an 8 out of 10. Great, great, great movie. Ethan Hawke, as always, worth the price of the ticket. Categories. One again, I didn't do these for Thor, but the categories, the black phone. Who got it the worst? My winner, I already said it. Max takes the axe to the skull. Obviously, the other child victims didn't work out for them. Uh, And the grabber gets his neck snapped. By Finney, the grabber falls into a hole in the cement, can't get out, breaks his ankle, then gets the next snap by Finney. Very nice job by Finney. Slip in the DMs. I'm slipping in the DMs of Ethan Hawke. Please do more creepy shit. This is a great role for you. Please do more of it. And then I'm slipping into Mason Thames' agent's DMs. Mason Thames, who played Finney. What's the plan for this kid, man? This kid did a hell of a job as the child star in this movie. I loved him. Uh, what's the plan? I want him in more shit. And the block in the back award for the most brainless decision in the movie. It's a tie. It's a tie for me. The grabber leaves the door unlocked in one scene. And Finney is able to briefly escape. Grabber eventually catches him, but he's able to briefly escape. And then Max... Not knowing his brother is a serial killer. Um, lay off the coke, my dude. Lay off the coke. So, folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's been a while since I've done a monologue, so I apologize. It was a little rocky, but uh, I want to plug some stuff before I go. Shatty Sanity recently with J.D. Hall. Uh, I've listened to it uh, a little bit on my way home from work. I'll probably finish it up on my way into work tomorrow. Great episode so far. Lynn Sanity NFL previews coming. I'll be on three of those divisions, I think. And fuck, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. And the Basketball Power Hour, always bringing down the latest news in the NBA. So follow Alex, follow JD on that show. Definitely worth a listen. And as always, folks, thank you very much for listening to Circle City Cinema.